before I pray for our first session here, um, as we talk about the hard work of preaching, we're not complaining. I don't mean to be groaning. So I'm trying to say at the beginning. I don't mean to wail and bemoan the hard work here for 30 minutes and then mention a few rewards at the end. So we're not here to group complain. This is not a lament. Uh, this is a way of getting at the joy. When you really love something and it's hard work, there is a deepening and an enjoyment of the work in talking about its difficulty. So as we talk about the hard work of preaching, my hope is that we would own that it's hard work so that we don't subconsciously cut corners in our calling. Let's own that it's hard work and let's take joy in it being hard work and celebrate together the hard work and the rewards and the great rewards that would lead us into the hard work. Uh, Hebrews 13 says to the elders, to the pastors, to the preachers, let them do this with joy, not groaning, because that would be no advantage to the people. Our people will not receive benefit and advantage if we groan about the hard work of preaching. And if our attitude is groaning and complaining, we won't work as hard as if we find the joy in the work. So let me pray for us. Father in heaven, this first session and all three sessions are exercises in the pursuit of joy in preaching. We rehearse the hard work. We rehearse the costs because we're willing to take those costs. We love the joy of what you've called us to do. We've seen the effect in others' lives, in our own lives, of faithful preaching of your word by the power of your spirit. And so we want to celebrate that now as we take it apart and think of the hard work in preparation, in delivery, in lifestyle, and pray that you would grow our capacities here for joy and for the hard work that leads to joy for us and our people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So brothers, we gotta own the times that we're living in when we talk about hard work. We are living in times that condition us for ease and for paths of least resistance. Some of it is deeply ingrained in our nature. God gave us capacities to survive times of famine. But brothers, we're not living in a time of famine. The resources are plenteous. And yet we engage ancient instincts for famine survival in all of our efforts to look for shortcuts and time savers and life hacks. You gotta get the closest parking spot. Subconscious, I don't think about it. Like you come to the lot, it's like, gotta get the closest one. For the optimized schedule with no hour wasted, for the quickest route from point A to point B, even if it's not the most enjoyable one. And this, this will undermine our preaching if we bring this to our preaching. Stephen Wedgworth, who's a pastor now in South Bend, well, that'd be an interesting place to pastor. He wrote this at Desiring God about technology and what our technological age is doing to us. Much of what we call technology does not actually help us to become more productive at our work, but rather does our work for us. 
while claiming to help us become more efficient, this sort of technology actually trains us. Get that? It's a training. This sort of technology actually trains us to do little or nothing at all. Very practically, because we have dishwashers, it can seem like such difficult thing to wash the dishes. And I think Stephen's right. Our generation is being trained to do little or nothing at all whenever possible. And we're being conditioned in that. We've been socialized in this. With this increasingly thin work ethic in our day, we're clearly, as a society, not becoming more Protestant in our work ethic. That is, we're not becoming more Pauline. I don't know if any of you guys have used uh, Bob Yarborough's commentary on the pastoral epistles. We got a hand back there. There we go, Sam. Uh, oh, okay. You haven't used it. Sam, I think you should get it. It's fantastic. I don't know if it's 2018. It's a more recent commentary on the pastorals. Not only if you're preaching 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, just for your own soul, he wrote this thing for pastors. It is so good. I think I'd put it on my top 10 list of building a pastor's library. Yarborough has this, I've never seen a section like this. In his introduction, he pauses to talk about Paul's work ethic. It's, it's double digits, 12, 15, 18 pages. I don't get to remember the exact count. He talks about Paul's Herculean labors. He says, God's mighty work in Christ resulted in Paul working mightily. Paul's open ethical secret is that he had a ferocious work ethic. What Paul modeled and counseled in his letters to Timothy and Titus reflects an embrace of arduous labor at many levels and in many ways. It is such a fitting thing that the one who manifestly works hardest and talks most about good works is the justification by faith apostle. And that's the Protestant work ethic. Justification by faith frees God's people to do good, not to earn standing with him, but because we're already right with him, to love and benefit our neighbor. That's the kind of preaching we're talking about. Liberated by Protestant theology, liberated by justification by faith, unleashed to work hard for the good of your people in your sermon prep, not as any earning before God. So Yarborough notes that the fingerprints of Paul's work ethic, he he identifies 29 places in 1 Timothy, 24 in 2 Timothy, 15 in Titus, for a total of 68 references to work ethic in the pastoral epistles. It's very fitting. Paul saw the ministry of Christian preaching and teaching done rightly as hard work. Not a nice job for guys with soft hands and who want to do indoor stuff. It's hard work. He wrote to the Thessalonians, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you. Call it labor. This was a labor. Who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. 
It's 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13. He says to Timothy, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says the laborer, words of Jesus, deserves his wages. Jesus called it labor and Paul calls it labor. 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18. Such pastoral labor in our preaching, in our teaching is not only cursed like all labor, in a fallen world, but it is also specifically targeted by Satan who loves to focus his attacks on the opposing lieutenants. If he can cut off the supply lines through the preachers being lazy, take every opportunity he gets for that. So if if I could channel screw tape for a minute, my brother Greg, he's very good at channeling screw tape. See if I see how this channeling of screw tape goes. I, I won't give the actual uh, wording of screw tape, but the concepts. I suspect that Satan and his minions are doing everything they can to make our age and its patterns as inconducive to preaching as possible. Visual over audible, distraction over focus. Increasingly short attention spans over normal human attention spans. I don't think this is side effect. I think this is demonic intention in our age to cut off the power of preaching for sustaining God's people. If Satan didn't already know to make a special attack on preaching, I'm sure he's smart enough to see it at the climax of Paul's final letter when he gives this preamble in charge. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his preaching and appearing, by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Satan knows the power. The letter is written and distributed for 2,000 years at the climax of the Pauline corpus. He knows. You've got to battle that. So brothers, what I'd like to do under this banner of the hard work of preaching is first, with joy, not groaning, count the costs, rehearse the hard work. And they are significant enough to make many men, I'm tempted to say most men, be very happy not to preach. But I hope the effect on us who would have that calling have that calling growing, be considering that calling is that it would deepen it and strengthen it. And then I want to conclude with a few reasons why it is worth the hard work, rehearse some specifics, and I'd love to talk some and hear from you in the discussion afterwards about some of those reasons that would feed our souls and get us through those moments of greatest resistance in our preaching. And let me clarify what I mean by preaching in this context. I'm not not talking about street preaching here. I'm referring to preaching as the heralding of God's word in Christ to the church in the context of corporate worship. So I mean the Sunday morning feeding of Christ's sheep as worship with his word by their local pastors. Jonathan will pick up that theme of preaching as worship in the next one. So... In counting the costs, let's distinguish among the various forms of hard work like this. First, the hard work of preparation. I'm going to do more than preparation. Second, the hard work of the preaching act itself. So in the moment, what's the hard work in the moment? 
and then the hard work of outside the pulpit, which is why a lot of guys don't want to do it because preaching is not just an event. It's a lifestyle. So we'll talk about the hard work outside the pulpit. So number one, the hard work of preparation. As many of you brothers know, the hard work begins in the preparation and often long before the preaching moment, carrying the burden of what needs to be said, what's been assigned to say in those weeks leading up to the message, days leading up, and then in particular, the night before and the morning of. So first of all, preparation for preaching is hard work because we are stewards. Our message is not our own. Public speaking, with all its challenges, is easier, the preparation for sure, when you just say your own stuff. When you're stewards, it's far more difficult. We have a book we have to steward. What we proclaim, Paul says, is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. Faithful preaching resists the allure of telling other people in public about myself and what I think and what I have done. Rather, it is a stewardship from God to serve others, not self, by announcing the good news of who he is and what he wants and what he has done based on what he says in his word. Whoever speaks, Peter says, let him do so as one who speaks the oracles of God. Brothers, we are stewards and it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 4, 2. That's the first one. Second part of the hard work of preparation. Stewards leads to this because we have a book. Study. Which I know many of us find study enjoyable. It's part of the reason you got into this, part of the reason you're here, I hope. I hope that you find study enjoyable in some sense. But study becomes hard work, especially when you have a due date. It is far easier to study something. It's like, oh, I'm just enjoying the reading. Oh, this is so wonderful. You know, accumulate this knowledge. Enjoy thinking about these concepts. And it's like, sermon's got to be done by five o'clock. Okay, that's different. Then I'd like to do manual labor. You know, if, if I'm out in the yard doing manual labor, it's easy to think, oh, I'd, I'd love to be studying right now. I'd love to be dreaming of a sermon right now. It'd be so great to be at my desk with my Bible open, just dreaming of sermons. But then when, this, when I need to be done at five with my sermon, I would love to be doing manual labor. It's hard work working on that deadline. Paul says, 2 Timothy 2.15, this is one to put as a banner, paste it somewhere. <laughs> Do your best to present yourself as one approved to God, a worker, worker. You are workers, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Doing the study well, not just enjoy, but doing it well is hard work. A pastor who doesn't sweat and strain at his study and teaching is not fulfilling his calling. 
I don't think. I do not think the Apostle Paul would suffer a lazy pastor. Diligent word work is hard work. It's a different kind of work. Working a shovel can be hard work. Working the word is hard work in a very different way. It's, it's emotionally taxing. It's different than manual labor. They have difficulties in their own ways. There is a difficulty in the study of words and getting to the meaning of an author's intention. And there's difficulty in producing the words, crafting the words, which we'll get to in a minute. So third, under the hard work of preparation. Part of the hard work is that preaching requires heart work. Hard work is in the heart work. Before we graciously expose the church to the words of God in all their edge, he first calls us to submit ourselves to those words, to that text, to that call for repentance. To preach his words well requires that they first, and perhaps most difficultly, land on the preacher himself. Again, we bear another's message, not our own. So in preparation, we carry a weight that involves not just the mental work of study, but the heart work of repentance and the spiritual work of shepherding a particular people, which Joe will talk about more. Preaching is hard work because it calls for self-humbling, not self-exaltation. Did not our Lord himself say, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Brothers, as preachers, we should tremble at those words and want to put to death everything in us that wants to exalt self in preparation, in preaching humble ourselves, that he would exalt us, rather than exalt ourselves, that he will humble us. Fourth, the goal of preaching makes it hard work. You know the text, the goal, goal of ministry, goal of preaching text, 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge, I love that, Paul just tells Timothy, here's the aim. Keep the aim in mind, Timothy. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the goal of our preaching with the goal of our ministry is love. We want loving people. We want people who love each other, love the lost, want to bring them into the kingdom. We're aiming at love, but not just love. He says love that issues from faith. That's even harder. It's not just telling our people what to do, but preaching in such a way that hearts are purified, consciences are calibrated, and sincere faith is fed. So the aim is love. The pathway is faith. Our preaching is meant to incite, strengthen, deepen, enrich, enliven faith that works through love. I had a preaching professor at RTS Orlando. We, we, <laughs> what? 
Okay, I'll leave that part of, I'll leave that Baptist Presbyterian comment to the side. This part of the hard work, not saying things you shouldn't. Um, Larry Kirk was a Baptist teaching at RTS during the summer sessions. Pastor in Daytona. He would drive down from Daytona to Orlando, had him in a summer session. And Larry, he had his metaphor for preaching. He called it the music and the dance. And I think this was his own channeling of, of Tim Keller or whatever. But I found it so helpful and worth mentioning here. The music, he said, is the gospel message, preaching the goodness, the sovereignty, the power of God, the power of the spirit, the work of Christ. So preaching uh, indicatives to oversimplify it. And then he said, the dance is, that's the lives we live. And, and, and as preachers, we got to preach dance steps. We got to do commands. The Bible's full of commands. The Great Commission says, teach them to obey all that Jesus commanded. We do all sorts of dance steps. But we want our people to come away thinking, wasn't that music great? I want to dance to the music. We don't want our people to come away thinking, that was a lot of dance steps. And a lot of dance steps to do. We're going to give dance steps. And we can give more dance steps when we really play the music of who God is and what he's done. Then people want the steps. I want to dance well to that. Play the gospel music, which feeds faith and encourages people's eagerness to want the help of the dance steps, to love. So the goal is hard work. Fifth, the hard work of preaching includes cutting sharp doctrines. You want to quote J.C. Ryle here for a second, more like a minute. Here's Ryle. Mark what I say. If you want to do good in these times, you must throw aside indecision and take up a distinct, sharply cut, doctrinal religion. I love this. The victories of Christianity, wherever they have been won, have been won by distinct doctrinal theology, by telling men roundly, of Christ's vicarious death and sacrifice, by showing them Christ's substitution on the cross and his precious blood, by teaching them justification by faith and bidding them believe on a crucified Savior, by preaching ruin by sin, redemption by Christ, regeneration by the Spirit, by lifting up the brazen serpent, by telling men to look and live, to repent, believe, and be converted. He continues, show us at this day any village or parish or city or town or district which has been evangelized without dogma. Christianity without distinct doctrine is a powerless thing. No dogma, no fruits. And brothers, it is easier to be indistinct. Clearly cut doctrines, clearly cut distinctions takes hard work. It is worth it. You hear the rewards in the Ryle quote. Sixth, taking into account then 
the text itself and that hard work and our careful study of it and our heart work and repentance and the context and needs of our people, then the time approaches and deadlines. I already referred to this. Say it again. Deadlines are hard work. There is a big difference between sermon prep in theory and sermon prep by five o'clock today. I feel that. Maybe you don't feel that. I feel that. That's big for me. Number seven, perhaps the most stress for me comes in the pinch between a coming assignment on a fixed day, usually Sunday's coming, and the uncertainty of what specific direction to take in the message. So here, here we're talking about the organizing principle, motif, pattern of this sermon. It's, it's one thing to have the text, work through the text, having a wonderful time studying all the possibilities. Oh, we could go this way, and we could go that way, and this way, and it'd be great to say that, and it'd be so much fun to say this, and I don't know if people need to hear that. And then at some point, it's got to come together coherently. There could be some organizing structure, even if it's a poor organizing structure of eight thoughts about the passage, you know. But you got to come with some kind of organizing structure. And when that happens, that gets into another point, next one, something's got to stay out. But finding that moment of where all, where the, the big sieve, or the, the big math, maybe to the hourglass, all these possibilities of what could be done with this text come to the hourglass of, Here's what this message is. Here's God's leadership for the people. Will he provide clarity for me? Am I just going to stay confused in this? Will this be an outline I'm excited to preach? Or is this just one I get through? There's stress in that pinch for the particular direction to take for this time and this people on this occasion. And that leads to number eight, cutting. I think this is the hardest part for me. If the previous one causes more, more stress, this one's not often stressful. It's just hard. Determining what not to say. Not saying too much or going on for too long. I, <laughs> I wanna leave the people wanting just a little bit more, not a little bit less. Or a lot less. That can happen. Or sometimes like, I like a lot less. That was a great sermon until the last 10 minutes. I want them wanting a little bit more. And that is hard work to decide what to cut. In, in, in the writing world, we talk about murdering your darlings. It's like, once, you, once you've written it in a sentence, you can't possibly throw that away, can you? Brothers, you got to. You got to learn that habit. It's part of the hard work. You will not be as good a preacher as you can be if you don't learn to throw away your paragraphs and points. Trust the Lord for some other time, or if it's not for this time, you didn't need to say that. So brothers, preparing well for preaching is hard work. And because it's private, not public, like the preaching event, we can be tempted to cut corners in our preparation. And if that's a common pitfall for you, you may need to step back and learn some good old Protestant work ethic. You may need to learn to work. Now, to be sure, hard work does not mean, let me give this disclaimer, it does not mean excessive sermon prep. That's not what I'm talking about. When you have other responsibilities, 
Jonathan referred to, there's far more in the ministry we're called to. Overseeing, major metaphor in the ministry, oversight, pastoring, giving of wisdom as elders, so much we're called to do. I'm not talking about letting sermon prep eat, consume your whole work life as a pastor. I'm not advocating for half your work week being given to sermon prep. Nor am I saying that hard work means long sermons. We just said the hardest part might be cutting at the end. Rather, what I mean is taking what time you have and really working hard at that time. Not dilly-dallying, checking Twitter, texting, allowing yourself to be given to diversion in the few precious moments you have to think hard and work hard and expend the emotional energy it takes to prepare well to feed your people. Three times, Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Now, part of that was Peter denied him three times. But he also didn't choose something easy to do in saying, feed my sheep. He really meant it. And I suspect what's implied in there is the hard work, not joyless, but the hard work in that calling to feed the sheep. All right, hard work in the moment. Now more briefly. Part of the hard work in the moment is what we Christians believe about the preaching moment and the context of corporate worship, which Jonathan will talk more about. Uh, In a real sense, corporate worship is the most important hour of the week. It is our single most important habit as a church. I know we want to be careful with this way of talking and thinking because the importance of the hour lies not in our performance as a preacher or in our roles as worship leader, preacher, prayer, but in what God delights to do by his spirit when his people are gathered in the context of worship. And yet it's unavoidable, brothers. Like when you do the most public and important part of your work, you're doing it in this sacred, serious context. So the solemnity of preaching is part of the hard work in the moment. We come back to that. First part of the hard work in the moment. For preachers, the public nature of the sermon is both a necessity and a cost. That it's public is part of the hard work. It is necessary because the very nature of the task is heralding God's word to the church. And it's hard work because among other pressures, most of us agree that public speaking is challenging. Survey after survey reports that on the whole, modern people fear public speaking more than anything else. It's very strange to see these surveys. Maybe you've heard Jerry Seinfeld talk about it. He says, speaking in front of a crowd is considered the number one fear of the average person. Who are these people? Number two is death. Death is number two? So Jerry says, this means to the average person, if you have to be at a funeral, 
You'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. Public speaking on its own is hard work and all the more to make it good. The second then, I already mentioned, the solemnity of the task. I just, I got to come back. 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 2. Piper says about this text, there is nothing quite like it anywhere else in scripture. I am not aware of any other biblical command that has such an extended, exalted, intensifying introduction. Five preceding intensifiers to this charge to preach the word. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in kingdom, preach the word. To those today who suspect previous generations may have overestimated the place of preaching, Piper makes this comment. Willing to toy with overstatement. I doubt that anyone has ever overstated the seriousness that Paul is seeking to awaken here. Third, beyond the solemnity of the moment is the call to courage. Public speaking is one challenge. Speaking into the church's most important hour is another Preaching with courage when God's word is at odds with the prevailing notions in society which inevitably come into the church is hard work. If we are to be faithful to God's voice in scripture, it is almost certain that someone within earshot every Sunday, if not many, will not like what we're saying. Fourth, and related, speaking to our context, the end times context in which we live, is hard work. Right after Paul gives Timothy that exalted charge to preach the word, don't ignore verse three. Verse three, it's unbelievable. Right there, preach the word. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Brothers, the time came. The time is here. Like Jesus says in John 4, the time is coming and it's here. But having itching ears, itching ears, just scratch it on the outside. Don't let the word go deep in the ear. Just a little, little tickle on the outside. Itching ears. Just give me a little tickle. Itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I don't know what it looked like in the first century to accumulate for themselves teachers. How do you accumulate for yourself teachers in the first century? I know what it looks like in the 21st century. Very easy. Fifth, preachers are unusually exposed spiritually. Extended monologue on God's behalf to human souls unavoidably reveals a man's heart. 
both by what he says and what he doesn't say, which produces a deep, unconscious aversion to preaching in many men. They understand subconsciously, I will be exposed if I stand in front of people by what I say and what I don't say. Preaching is tacit self-revelation. What we don't say also speaks, which is perhaps something to consider in your preparation. Look at that text and say, is there something that's going to speak if I don't address it (laughs) in this text? Sixth, the hard work of authentically embodying the message heralding what needs to be heralded, gently saying what needs gentleness without being overly affected or dramatic, emotionally engaging with the message with appropriate forcefulness and urgency and comfort. Seventh, there is in preaching what is for some a paralyzing exposure to criticism. So not just the exposure of the self spiritually, but the exposure to criticism. To preach the Christian scriptures is to encounter the regular temptation to shrink back. Paul says that twice. He's speaking leader, preacher to preachers, man to men to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. Twice, I did not shrink from declaring to you all that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, calling for repentance. Verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. There is in preaching the temptation to shrink back. And that's part of the hard work in the moment. Finally, then outside the pulpit. This is brief, but it's huge because most of our lives are outside the pulpit. Sacrifice in good preaching is intimately intertwined with the preacher's own life. Faithful preaching is not just a once in a while event. It's not just something we do. It's a lifestyle. Have you noticed the be, be verbs? Not just the do verb, preach the word. Paul follows with be verbs. Be ready in season and out of season. All the time? You're like a vacation? You should not be a preacher for a while? Be ready. Always ready. That's verse two with preach the word. Always be sober-minded. 2 Timothy 4 verse 5. Always be Always be sober-minded, which is important in spiritual leadership, keeping your head, balanced thinking, not being extremist, important in the pulpit, always being sober-minded. When a man stands before God's people as God's spokesman, the stakes are not only raised for his words in the moment, but for his life outside the pulpit. So you know, 1 Timothy 4, 16, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Not just the teaching. Teaching is important. Very important. Don't minimize the importance of the teaching and preaching. And keep a watch on yourself and the teaching. 
Not many of you should be preachers, my brothers, for we know that we who preach will be judged with greater strictness. Not just for the words in the moment, for our lives. The man who addresses God's people as his herald will be looked to unavoidably as an example of the Christian faith. And so Paul says, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Lazy preachers might get by for a time, but their laziness will be revealed soon enough. So Paul says to Timothy, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Sunday after Sunday becomes a public demonstration of whether the preacher is growing or stagnant. And it will be plain over time. So preaching then is not just something we do from time to time. In a real sense, preacher is something we are called to be. And for guys here, you're aspiring to this. You want to be a preacher? Don't think this begins once you become a preacher. It starts now, now, be this now. Be the person who will be the preacher 10 years from now, five years from now, three years from now, now, always ready, in season and out, always sober-minded. Finally here, one of the greatest costs outside the pulpit is the subtle, and at times not so subtle, way that the preacher's wife and children endure the ups and downs with daddy. It is no small thing, brothers. Think, think about this. No small thing to carry the weight of your vocation, the highest point, the most pressured point, on the weekends when you have children who are out of school on the weekends. I think there's a great argument for team preaching here. <laughs> if not for team preaching for your whole life, if we don't want to go there yet, at least team preaching when you have children in the house that are school-aged. It takes work and emotional fortitude to give yourself fully to your family all day Saturday without being distracted by the task of preaching to dozens or hundreds the next morning. Good Christian preaching and teaching requires regular and at times enormous self-sacrifice. Brothers, done rightly, it's hard work. In the preparation, in the moment, outside the pulpit, and often a quiet behind-the-scenes mantle the preacher's wife and children see, but the congregation does not. It's not heavy lifting physically, but it can be unusually taxing spiritually and emotionally. And brothers, it is a burden that good preachers gladly bear. I love that line from Iswell. On the cross, my burden gladly bearing. He didn't just grit his teeth. He gladly bore the burden. Like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That's a good preacher's text, as well as all the ministry. 
great preacher's text do, to spend and gladly be spent for your souls. So one thing I'd love to do in our discussion, you guys get to ask questions, and I hope I get to ask questions too. I want to ask about some of the particular rewards you look to when the going gets tough, when you meet resistance in preaching to keep going gladly. I'll close with four quick ones, four specific ones. Specifics help me to not just be drawn into this larger picture, but think specifically, what are the rewards we look to? One reward is a mysterious one. It's almost irrational. Some of us, probably most, if not all, many in this room, find find in ourselves a holy ambition to do this. Looks like folly to the world, but we find in ourselves by the Spirit a holy ambition to do this. However hard it is, however dissatisfying the last sermon is, strangely by the Spirit, there's this desire to give it another shot. What is that? How crazy is that? Brothers, that's evidence of the Spirit. I take that. I default to that being an evidence of God's working rather rather than trying to challenge it and pick it apart. We feel like Paul, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And so when you're doing what you feel called to do, there is a deep satisfying joy in that. A kind of Eric Liddell, not the same thing, but when I preach, I feel his pleasure. Second, the satisfaction of work well done and completed at the sermon level. This is practical for me. On Friday, I'm trying to push through. I hit that resistance point to think there will be a sense of satisfaction and relief to have this on paper, put it away for the night and be freed for my family tomorrow. And so at the sermon level, there's a sense of satisfaction in completing the preparation, having done it well, go all the way through the process, run through the finish line. And then on Sunday morning, go through this by the power of the spirit. And then the sermon, the sermon's done. Sense of completion at the sermon level. Third, there's a sense of completion at the life work level. This this is new to me because I just saw my dad finish 46 years of dentistry. I walked through that with him, tried to walk through it with him emotionally, and think about that carrying that burden of the profession with the highest suicide rate, and he made it 46 years. He handed off the practice, handed off the baton. He did his job. He did it well. He was faithful, and there was a great sense of completion. I'm done with my life's labor. And Paul's like that with the Ephesian elders. I am innocent of your blood, Acts 20, 26. That is something to look to, think about, pursue that larger life satisfaction. Finally here, the joy of being Christ's instrument in life change and life sustenance. It is such a joy to be used by God in ministry that we can easily come to find our joy in our use rather than Christ himself. So we got the warning, Luke 10, 20. Rejoice not that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And brothers, the reason there's that temptation is because those are, those are real joys. It's real joy to be used as an instrument, humbly, by God, to sustain the saints. 
and to incite faith for the first time in a hearer. So for those who feel like, this is all of us to some extent, I battle laziness. I have battled laziness. My pastoral ministry hasn't been as diligent and hardworking as it could be. My sermon prep isn't as diligent and hardworking as it could be. Paul would be quick to challenge those who find hard work easiest with the reminder that apart from God, your labors are in vain. Hard work is not the end in of itself. Oh, I work hard on my sermon. God's going to use it. No, your hard work is in vain apart from God. And for those of us who know that we need help, who have more regrets about laziness than overwork, I think Paul would remind us, we are his workmanship brothers, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He has not left us to labor in our own strength, but he does mean for us to labor. He has good works prepared ahead of time for us as preachers. And preaching and teaching will be some of the central good works of our lives, if that's our calling. And he doesn't demand a dead sprint, but invites us to walk in them. So Father in heaven, we want to expend the effort you've called us to expend and that you empower by your spirit. We don't want to run in our own strength. We want to walk by your spirit. And so would you help us? Help us to be diligent, to do the hard work of preaching and in a strange sense, love the hard work of preaching because we have seen in Christ what the fruit of the right hard work by the Spirit produces in joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.